0: Today is January 6th, 2021. Hey, did anything interesting happen today? You know, I don't do politics. This past Sunday, I said to you that despite COVID and the regulations that were imposed on the world because of COVID, Despite that, God deserves his worship. And that is why GCA just kept plugging along. Same thing here. The political machinations of the world don't change the fact that God deserves his worship. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we suspended our midweek services through the holidays... I stopped specifically at Isaiah 25, well, we read through Isaiah 25, and we stopped there, and I said, this seems like a good place to take the break, because it would be good to start the year 2021 by reading chapter 26. Little did I know that chapter 26 of Isaiah was also going to speak so perfectly, so precisely, To not only the days that we live in, in a general sense, but the day right today, as we have seen the political upheaval and political craziness that is happening in our world right now, here Isaiah is going to tell us yet again to trust in God. And so that becomes thematic, not only for GCA, but it's thematic in the Bible that kingdoms rise and fall kings rise and fall nations rise and fall the political machinations of human beings mean nothing to God to whom the nations are a drop in the bucket and under any and all circumstances God still deserves his worship because God is still the almighty king on his throne now chapter 26 of Isaiah comes on the heels of Isaiah predicting God's judgment against various Gentile nations. Whether we're looking at Babylon or whether we're looking at Egypt, whether we read about Assyria or the Moabites or or all the way down into Africa, and then finally the whole world. God is going to judge the whole world, and he's going to judge those nations based on the fact that they have broken the everlasting covenant that he has made with all mankind after Noah and his family, eight people, got off the ark. God said to them, and therefore to all of mankind, don't shed blood. And God is going to judge the whole earth because of the bloodshed of the earth. And that's going to come up here. It's going to come up again in the next couple of chapters that the earth is going to give birth to its dead and God is going to judge the earth because of the bloodshed of the earth. But in the midst of that, throughout chapter 26, you see contrast after contrast between the people who belong to God, who are protected by God, who are trusting in God, and the world that is the God-hating world. And it's very clear that God is going to preserve and protect his own, and he's going to judge the nations that have shown themselves to be his enemies. Some of what is predicted in Isaiah 26 has not happened yet and cannot happen unless there is a fundamental change to the way the world and the nations work. And therefore, most commentators agree that chapter 26 is about the millennium, about the time of peace that God has predicted for Israel when he's going to return them to their land When no one is going to hurt or harm in all his holy mountain, there's really no other place historically where you can see these things that are described in chapter 26 coming to their fruition. And so that makes me think that Isaiah is obviously premillennial in his thinking, though that terminology didn't exist in his day. He is still arguing for the return of Israel to their homeland for a time of peace and safety and prosperity with David's greater son as their king. I know sometimes I start to sound like a broken record when I talk about this stuff, except that the Bible just keeps saying it over and over and over again. And so it is genuinely a thematic element of the Bible that to my way of thinking, is unavoidable. The language of chapter 26, verse 1, starts with, in that day. And we have seen in the book of Isaiah, time and time again, that he uses that phrase, in that day. It's that day that he's casting out into the future. In that day, the day when God is going to restore Israel and give them the glorious kingdom that he has promised them. And in that day this song will be sung specifically in the land of Judah. So now we know that it's at some future day and it's specifically for the land of Judah, the southern tribes, the area of Jerusalem. Now there is no way, and please don't come up here and slap me for saying this because I'm just going to say it again so that it gets tattooed to your brain. There is no way to make the land of Judah the church. Okay, thank you for not slapping me for that. But the land of Judah specifically is speaking of the land of Judah. And there's no way around that. That means that these are earthly promises taking place in the land of Judah, in Jerusalem, the place where God has chosen to place his name. In that day, there's going to be a song that they're going to sing in the land of Judah. It starts with, we have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. So Isaiah launches in instantly to In Judah, they're going to sing about the fact that Jerusalem is their strong city and that God sets up walls and ramparts for security, and yet he opens his gates for the righteous nation so that they may enter. Who, in this context, given the direct audience that Isaiah is prophesying to, and inasmuch as he has already identified the uh, area, the land of Judah, who exactly then is the righteous nation? Israel. Okay, so he's talking about the restoration of Israel, who he refers to as the righteous nation, the one who remains faithful. The steadfast mind, God will keep in perfect peace. That phrase, the steadfast mind, means people who remain faithful to God, who keep their minds set on God, even as this world rocks and roils and reels and does all the crazy things this world does. We are not upset by the stuff of this world because we keep our mind set on the fact that sovereign God is in control and he knows what he's doing, and even though we woke up this morning not knowing what the day was going to bring... Nevertheless, he knew. He knew it was coming. And it's all part of his grand scheme, his grand plan to bring about the very thing that he has already said is going to be the culmination of his judgment against the world and the return of his son to set him up as king in Jerusalem. All all of this is no surprise to God whatsoever. And so if you want to have actual peace the kind of peace that Paul calls the peace that passes understanding, well, then you keep your mind set on God. You keep your mind stayed on God. You remain faithful to the word of God. And then these things, the coming and going of people and nations and governments and crazy people, none of that's going to be able to shake you because you're going to know that our God is still in control the one that remains faithful is the righteous nation that enters at the gate by the way that's probably also why Jesus speaking to Jews would use phrases like straight is the gate narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life because they know predictively that there's a city coming new Jerusalem ultimately coming And that there are going to be gates that you have to enter through in order to get in. And so in the ultimate city, Jerusalem, for the thousand years and then the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, there are specific gates that you have to enter through and only the righteous enter through those gates. So when Jesus said that, he was simply speaking in league with what the prophets had already predicted, that there is a righteousness coming for Jerusalem. And that the righteous are going to enter by the gate into the city of God. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind God will keep in perfect peace. Because he trusts in you. And if you trust in God despite circumstances and you remain faithful to God and his word, despite circumstances, you will, in fact, find peace. The kind of peace that the world goes, how can you be at peace right now? Don't you see the turmoil? Don't you see how crazy it all is? Yeah, and God's in control of it. And so you have that peace of mind. Verse 4 says, trust in the Lord forever. For in, this is such an interesting phrase, in God the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in the God who is Yahweh, as opposed to any other gods who might be out there trusting in the God who is Yahweh, we have an everlasting rock. Now, why would Isaiah choose that particular terminology at this point? A rock is solid, a rock is dependable. If you have a giant boulder in front of your house, you're going to walk out every day and that giant boulder is going to be in front of your house because a rock is steadfast, a rock is solid. And so because you have a solid everlasting God, an everlasting rock who is God Yahweh, for that reason you can trust in the Lord forever. And you'll notice there's no caveat in that verse. There's nothing that says trust in the Lord unless things go in a way that you don't understand. He says trust in the Lord no matter what. And don't stop trusting in the Lord just because circumstances are difficult to comprehend. Instead, trust in the Lord forever. Why? Because he is an everlasting rock. He is solid. He is dependable. You can count on him. He is the unchanging, everlasting foundation. And then starting at verse 5, he talks about what God has already done to the Gentile nations. Now in the last few weeks, as we have gone through the various judgments against the various nations, we have seen that some of those judgments have already happened. They've already come true. For instance, Tyre and Sidon. The pulling down of Tyre has already occurred. It's already happened. So at verse 5, he says, For he, God, has brought low those who dwell on high. He has brought down the unassailable city. Well, that sounds like Tyre or Babylon or any of the cities that thought that they were impregnable, that they could never be brought down. They were the nations, they were the kingdoms that... All other kingdoms had to do obeisance to. And yet, history tells us that those kingdoms, one by one, fell. Because God took them down. Why? Because as they dwelt on high, they became self-sufficient. They started thinking that it was up to them. And as I've said so many times, human beings are no good at self-governance and so as soon as people start governing themselves they start becoming so egocentric so full of themselves that they don't need God or his word at least they think that and so one by one through the course of history God has taken those empires down for he has brought low those who dwell on high the unassailable city he lays it low he lays it low to the ground, he casts it to the dust. In other words, he takes it completely down. You might recall that Daniel's vision of the kingdoms of the world as he was interpreting the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. There was a series of kingdoms that were like a statue with various different kinds of metal and then rock and then clay all the way down. And when the rock comes down from heaven, the kingdom from heaven comes down like a rock that crashes on the toes, crushes the whole statue, the statue all falls down, and then it says that it grinds them to dust, and they blow away in the wind. The nations of the earth are like a drop in the bucket to God. And so he crushes nations, And then he lays them into the ground. And then he casts it away like the dust. The same way that any of us, at least hopefully all of us, go through our house dusting. And the dust is unable to put up a fight. That's how the nations of the earth are when God decides to take them down. And then he sweeps them aside like the dust. The foot will trample on it. This is really interesting and poetic language. He's saying it's laid down so low that not only are humans going to trample on it, but think about what he has taken down. He has brought low those who dwell on high and the feet of the afflicted and the steps of the helpless are going to walk on the dust of the people who oppress them. So the image is that is God takes down these mighty kingdoms, takes down these unassailable cities, as he takes them down, the people who were oppressed are the very feet that are going to trample on it, the feet of the afflicted and the steps of the helpless. Meanwhile, verse 7 starts talking about, but what about the way of the righteous? Okay, so the way of the kings of the earth, they're going to be destroyed, they're going to be laid low, but what about... The righteous of God. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Now that doesn't mean as much to us now because we have trains and cars and we have airplanes and we have tunnels that have been borne through mountains that people can drive through or travel through. And so we don't have that same sense of the importance of finding level of ground. But if you're having to walk everywhere, or you're maybe taking a donkey or a horse or a camel everywhere, every time you come across a steep hill, every time you come across a valley, you've got to go down and make your way up the other side. That takes a tremendous amount of effort, can slow your trip, and sometimes can even stop your trip. And so this language of God making the difficult path smooth, smoothing out the pathway ahead of the righteous, is very important language, especially to those who know how important it is to find smooth travel. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for thee eagerly. Thy name, even thy memory, is the desire of our souls. I think every one of us could say amen to that verse. Of course, none of you did, but I think every one of us would have to say, even though this is Isaiah writing thousands of years ago, we would still read a verse like that and say, yes, that's exactly how I think. That's exactly how I feel. Indeed, right now, walking out on this planet, I'm trying to walk according to your judgments. I'm trying to follow the way of your judgments, O Lord, but I'm waiting for you eagerly. Even Jesus said, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come. That's all part of that eager looking forward to, the eager awaiting of what God has promised that he's going to do. I mean, when you hear about, when you read about the return of Christ so that he can come and get his bride, doesn't that make you eager? Like, let's let's go. The events, again, of this crazy world are enough to make you say, okay, let's go. I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. Let's go. Let's get on with it. But while we're waiting, we continue to follow in the ways of his judgments. He is the one who determines what right and wrong is. We're living in a nation right now. Again, I'm not even doing politics at this moment, though it may sound that I am. We live in the midst of a nation right now that has turned its back on God completely and is rife for judgment. And given the change in our political structure over the next few weeks, we're going to see the leftist agenda come raging out at us. The agenda that can't tell a boy from a girl, that denies the basics of gender, the Bible says God made them man and woman. The government says, uh-uh. You shall not shed blood. Do not shed blood on the earth. One of the commandments is do no murder. Unless, of course, it's your baby. If it's your baby, which is the fruit of your womb, which is a gift from God, a blessing from God, you now have a right, they claim. It is a woman's right to be able to kill her baby. There's no question, since the garden, since Adam and Eve, there's no question about what God's intention for marriage was. One man, one woman, for life. That's the intention for marriage. Government says, no, complete profanation of marriage. Anybody can marry anybody or anything. There was a woman in Texas who married a train station. That's true. And nobody went, you know, that's not technically a marriage. So you've got this systematic, complete undermining of everything that God's word says. God's word says, here is the reality of life. One man, one woman, two genders, do no murder, no bloodshed, no homosexuality. And then the government comes along because we're no good at self-governance. Comes along and says, no, all of those things that the Bible said, we deny every one of them systematically down the line, point by point by point. Now they have successfully stopped churches from meetings because of the COVID thing. Don't ignore what is really happening in the world right now it is so much more than just a political agenda as Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood we wrestle against, as Micah read on Sunday we wrestle against principalities and powers and, and the rulers of the darkness of this world the kratos, and spiritual wickedness in high places and when those powers Exercise their power in the world they are naturally going to deny everything that is godly everything that is God's standard and God's judgments but God's judgments says verse 8 his righteousness his righteous judgments of what is wrong and what is right and what the proper way to live is those judgments we try to follow we try to walk in those judgments While we're waiting for him eagerly, and his name, that holy name, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your name, even your memory, even the thought of you, is the desire of our very souls. At night, at the end of hard days, I'm sure you're like me. You lay in bed and you long for God. When the stuff of this day and this world clears away, and you can think clearly for a few minutes, you want the righteousness of God to break out on the planet. You want the holiness of God to sweep over the nations like water covers the earth. It's what we desire, it's what we want, and we wait eagerly for it, knowing that the judgment of God is the right judgment, is the good judgment. Even if the whole world denies it. Verse 9, at night, my soul longs for you. Again, I think we'd all say, Amen. At the end of the day, when you clear away all the stuff of this life and you can just lay in bed and think clearly, your soul longs for God. Enough of this life, enough of this world. At night my soul longs for thee. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, that's why I said the right judgments, the sane judgments, the good judgments, the bad judgments, when, when the world experiences what God has already said is reality, when the world When the earth experiences your proper judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. The end result of the teaching of God, the end result of studying the judgments of God, the reason that we read the precepts of God, the reason that I stand up here week after week after week and say things like, One man, one woman, that's what marriage is. I keep standing up here and saying, stop killing babies. You're not supposed to be shedding blood on the earth, and yet you're doing it. Stop profaning marriage. Stop the political destruction of the word of God. Stop attempting to close down the worship of God. The reason that we keep saying that and keep saying that over and over again is not only because the spirit within me, and within this church, longs for God and diligently seeks God but we know that when we experience the judgments of God the end result of it is righteousness and that's what we're seeking after when the earth experiences your judgments the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness now here's another one of those contrasts that I mentioned Starting at verse 8. But what about evil people? What about when evil people experience the judgments of God? Do they learn righteousness? Isaiah now is going to say, but when they experience the judgments of God, they learn nothing. Instead, they rebel against God. For the wicked is shown favor. The translators of the NASB has put the word though in there because this is supposed to be a contrast, that the wicked here on the world are shown favor from God. They do eat. They do have clothes. They do get rain in season. Good things do come to them from God. But he does not learn righteousness. So when the judgments of God come to those who are faithful to God, who are longing for God, who are looking for God, we continue to learn righteousness through understanding the judgments and the precepts of God. And even though God is favorable in letting wicked people live in his world and experience his kindness toward them in giving them the things they need for this life, nevertheless, they do not learn righteousness. Instead, he deals unjustly in the land of uprightness so even though the land of uprightness the land of people who are longing for God looking for God, faithful to God, trying to do what's right, nevertheless the wicked even living in that environment are going to continue to be wicked and to do wickedness and they will not learn righteousness he deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and he does not perceive the majesty of Yahweh. He does not perceive God. He learns nothing. Even though the righteousness of God is being learned by some people because the judgments of God are being poured out on the earth, the unjust learn nothing from it. How many times have you heard me use the phrase, and I'll be, I'll be genuinely surprised if any of you actually know how many times But how many times have you heard me use the phrase, the only thing we've learned from history is that we've learned nothing from history. You look back at the history of the world, even what is recorded in the Bible for us of the history of the Middle East, and what you see is God constantly pouring out his judgments, judging the nations of the world, judging his own chosen people judging the nations that came up against his people, even though he used those nations to judge his people. God is pouring out judgment, judgment, judgment all the time to demonstrate his right, his righteousness, his wrath, his holiness, his sovereignty over the world. He keeps demonstrating himself, and human beings, evil, wicked human beings, learn nothing because they do not perceive the majesty of the Lord, of Yahweh. They just don't get it. Verse 11 says, O Lord, thy hand is lifted up, and yet they do not see it. Paul told us that the heavens themselves declare the existence of the maker the very fact that you can walk outside and look up in the heavens and see the heavenly firmament and see all the stars and see all the planets, all of that openly declares that there is a sovereign God who created all these things. And yet human beings don't see it, don't perceive it. God will lift up his hand in judgment. He takes down nations. He destroys kingdoms. He shows time and time again that he has the ability to take up whatever king he wants and take down whatever king he wants, to execute his judgment in the earth. He can bring famines. He can bring plagues. He can do whatever he wants on his own planet, and yet people don't perceive it. They still walk around empty-headed going, "Uh, I don't know. I don't believe in God. I don't believe that exists. And yet he is lifting up his hand constantly to demonstrate that he exists and that he is in majesty, that he is the king, that he is the ruler over his creation. And people don't get it. Oh Lord, thy hand is lifted up and yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and they are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour thine enemies. When God pours out his zeal for the people of Israel, who this is directed to, when he pours out both his uh, tribulation, his judgment, and his love in regathering them, when he demonstrates his zeal for those people, then the wicked of the earth are going to be put to shame and fire is going to devour the enemies of God. Meanwhile, what about the faithful of God? What about the people of God? What about the people that are following after God? Verse 12 Lord, thou wilt establish peace for us, since thou hast also performed for us all our works. That is such an interesting pronoun right there. If he had said, You have already performed all your great works, So that we could see your works, how you perform your works, that would be understandable. But this verse says, you have also performed for us all our works. All the works that belong to us, all the promises that you've made to us, all the things that you're going to do on our behalf, and our reaction And the works that we do, you know, Paul in writing to the Philippians, in the context of saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which is all too often where people stop quoting that verse. The reason Paul wrote that is he said, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of all his good pleasure. You don't even get credit for the good works that God ordained you're going to walk in. It is still God who works through you for all of your good works. And that seems to be the theology that Isaiah is describing here. O oh Lord, our God, Lord, you will establish peace for us, since thou hast also performed for us all our works. Now that might mean, as I said a moment ago, that might mean When he has established the kingdom, when he has gathered them back during the millennial period, they're going to be able to look on him who had this great zeal for his people and they're going to be able to say, you have performed for us all the works that you promised to us, therefore they are our works. Or you can read that as everything we did, all the faith we had, all the way that we persevered in you, then trusted you. In an everlasting way, you get the credit for it. We don't get credit for it. You performed in us all our works. Verse 13. O Lord our God, other masters beside you have ruled over us. Boy, if you're living in the world, that's a fact. I love God, I love Christ, but you know what? I still have to pay taxes. I love God, I love Christ, but I still have to obey the civil laws. Because there are still human beings that are ruling over us. Other masters beside you have ruled over us. But through you alone, we confess your name. And there's that theology again. Through you alone, we confess your name. You're the cause of our good works. And through you, we confess you. We declare our allegiance to you because of you working through us. So this is Isaiah's theology of an absolutely sovereign God. Again, the uh, the same Isaiah who began this book with, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Of course he would see God as sovereign because it is God who then cleansed his lips so that he could even speak to God. He knows an absolutely sovereign God and I think that's what he's writing about here. You have performed for us all our works along with through you alone we confess your name. Meanwhile, verse 14, departed spirits, the people who have already died, the dead will not live. He's talking about the evil dead here. You're going to see that by contrast in a moment. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, thou hast punished and destroyed them, and thou hast wiped out all remembrance of them. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord. That has to be Israel. Thou hast increased the nation, and thou art glorified. Thou hast extended all the borders of the land, That's very interesting language. You have extended the borders of our land. How much land was Abraham originally promised back in the Abrahamic covenant? He was promised all the land in the Middle East, all the way out to the Euphrates River, all the way down to the Nile River. So reaching out into the Middle East and all the way down into Egypt, all that land was promised to Abraham The purpose for the increase was because there were going to be so many people in Israel that God was going to have to enlarge their tents. And now here, as part of that, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation, and you are glorified, and you have extended all the borders of the land. Go one chapter forward to chapter 27. Chapter 27... This is really, really interesting in this context. Verse 12, and it will come about in that day that the Lord will start his threshing. When you're threshing, you're gathering fruit into your barn. You're getting the good grain. You're bringing it into your barn. He will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the river of Egypt. And you will be gathered one by one, O sons of Israel. So this is talking about God regathering Israel. And the two places that he mentions are the river Euphrates and the river Nile, which are the areas of the land that are all promised in the Abrahamic covenant, the ultimate increase of land. And yet here it's put within the context of the gathering of the sons of Israel, one by one. Verse 13, And it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. Suddenly this gets all revelation on us, if revelation-y is a word. It will come about also that in that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. There's the regathering of Israel yet again to their promised land, back to Jerusalem, one by one, the trumpet call for the great gathering. You go to the book of Revelation and you read about an angel doing exactly that. The same way that Jesus predicted that it was going to happen. So that is part of why I say that the only way you can read chapter 26 is through a end-times prophetic eschatological framework because this increase of the land and the gathering in, again, of Israel simply has not happened yet. And yet for it to happen and for peace to come to that area and for the Gentile nations to flow to Jerusalem, that has to happen within the millennial period because that's when it's promised. Okay, so we're back in chapter 26, and we're nearly, almost, sort of, kind of done. Sort of. And I appreciate that you believed me. I didn't get to talk for a couple of weeks. So I... Anyway. Thou hast increased the nation, says verse 15 of chapter 26. You have increased the nation, O Lord. Thou hast increased the nation, and you are glorified. Thou hast extended all the borders of the land. And now he's going to talk about how Israel sought the Lord in their distress. And the language gets very great tribulation If great tribulation is in fact a word. I'll make up words if I can't find them. You know that happened once. Quick, Quick aside, quick story. I forget exactly the word that Elder Ward made up, and he made up one of those words. You know, he used to make up words like righteousified, which I still use. And one day he made up some word, and someone tried to call him out and said, You just made that word up. And Elder Ward said, All words are made up. <laughs> so that means I can get all eschatologically E if I want to. Oh Lord, they sought you in their distress. He still seems to be talking about the nation, the increased nation. The nation of Israel, in their distress, they sought you. And they could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. So, the purpose of the distress that they went through was not for the purpose of destroying them or getting rid of them, like God is going to do to the evil that we just read about earlier in this same passage, but it is for the purpose of purifying them, for the purpose of chastening them. O oh Lord, they sought you in their distress. And they could only whisper a prayer and thy chastening was upon them. And then that language of a pregnant woman going through labor comes up again. And every time in the Bible that you read about this day of distress, this time of tribulation such as never was or ever would be again, it's always likened to men running around with their arms across their stomachs like a woman in labor to show the agony that they are in. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and she cries out in her labor pains, and thus were we before thee, Lord. Were, notice the language, that's what we were before you. So he's writing from the perspective Of the nation being settled in Jerusalem, having a time of peace and prosperity, all the promises of God are finally worked out in the nation that he loves. The evil of the world are seeing the zeal of God for his people, for his nation. And once upon a time, the way that you turned us, the way that you brought us back to you, was that you took us through chastening. You took us through a a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. And then we were like a woman in labor pains. Thus we were before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed, past tense, in labor. And we gave birth, as it were, only to win. Okay, now comes another great contrast. And I hope I can do justice to this contrast. Because it's really, truly magnificent. Isaiah admits... That no amount of effort, no amount of struggle, no amount of pain that human beings go through in agonizing toward God, for God, for their own righteousness, none of that can actually accomplish anything. It's very much like Jesus saying, the flesh profits nothing. And so he says, when we labored, after all that labor, we gave birth, as it were, Only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were the inhabitants of the world born. In other words, no amount of our pain and our agony, no amount of effort on our part, no amount of fleshly effort from us can save even one person. We can't make deliverance within the earth. We can't make the inhabitants of the earth come alive. We can't raise the dead spirits. He's already told us that the spirits of the dead are in the earth and then they are forgotten. But look at verse 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. Again, that's awfully eschatologically because it's saying exactly what we believe about the anastasis, about the standing up again, about the resurrection of the dead. Isaiah says, you're dead, the dead that belong to God, not the evil dead, but the righteous dead will live. This is before Jesus. This is before Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This is before the first fruits of the resurrection. This is before the example that God gave the whole earth of the resurrection of the dead. And yet Isaiah predicts your dead will live, their corpses will rise, and you who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy. Okay, now I just got done saying the wicked dead are going to be destroyed in the earth and their memory is going to be forgotten and they're going to go into the the dust and the punishment, the judgment of God. And yet your dead, the ones who are faithful to you, the ones who have lived out their lives following after your judgments and your precepts, they're not only going to live again, but they're going to come up from their dead state awake and shouting for joy. That sounds like a pretty good plan, a pretty good day. I'm going to tell you another Elder Ward story, just because I can. And I told you one, so why not? I'll tell you another David Morris and I were sitting with Elder Ward, and Elder was smoking his pipe or sitting in a hotel talking. And Elder Ward said that he looked forward to bursting up out of his grave. He said, I want to know what that's like. I look forward to coming alive again, bursting up out of my grave. David and I agreed that we would rather take part in the instantaneous change. We'd rather be alive and step from life into life and just miss the dead part. We prefer that. And he said, no, no, I want to know what it's like to come alive again. And so I said to him, okay, well, you do that. And when you get up out of your grave, David and I will be standing there going, well, how was it? Because I prefer to not experience that. Now I tell you that story to say, right now, I'm <laughs> 65, I'm, I, I might have to find out what it's like to go through dying, and, and I'm glad to read this kind of stuff that says, not only are we going to awake, but we're going to shout for joy, that's going to be that great getting up morning. The great joy of rising up out of the grave, singing and shouting. And you don't think we're going to worship God at that moment? Celebrate God at that moment? We're going to be shouting for joy as we get up again, up out of our grave. As Christ defeats death in the grave. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake. And shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn. References to dew like that all the way through the poetic books of the Old Testament. Speak of renewed life, speak of no drought, not drying up, not shriveling up. The dew from heaven that is renewed morning by morning. That's the way he's using this language. Your dew is as the dew of the dawn. You're refreshed, you're alive. And the earth, here's the contrast, a minute ago he said, when we gave birth, we only gave birth to, as it were, the wind. We didn't accomplish anything. We did not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were the inhabitants of the world born because of our effort. But look at this contrast, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits, to the dead. The earth will give birth during the resurrection of the dead in Christ. The dead in God are going to be not only born again spiritually, but born again physically. As the earth labors in pain, which it's doing at this moment, and has been doing for a long time, and ultimately its labor is going to give birth to the just, to the righteous, to the chosen of God. And the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the indignation runs its course. What's Isaiah saying there? He's saying there are people who belong to God and God knows who they are and they are hidden in the earth. And he says... Come, my people, enter into your rooms, close your doors, hide for a little while longer. Stay hidden in your worldly habitat because the day is coming when the indignation of this earth, when the judgment of this earth, when the pain of this earth, it's finally going to run its course for behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for all their iniquity and the earth will reveal specifically her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. This is why a couple of weeks ago I pointed out to you that the covenant that all Gentile nations have broken is the covenant that God gave to Noah where he said no bloodshed, no bloodshed on the earth. The final judgment of God is that the earth is going to reveal the bloodshed. Everybody who is guilty of breaking that covenant of God, of resisting the judgments of God, everybody who is responsible for abortion, death, war, hatred, all the bloodshed on the earth is going to be revealed as God judges people in righteousness. And the earth will no longer cover up its slain. God is going to hold everybody accountable for what they've done in their lifetimes. For what they've done against his word. I said earlier tonight that it seems like the governing authorities these days. They're just determined to do everything they can to deny the holiness and the righteousness of God and his word. There's going to be increasing pressure against Christians, against God-fearing Christians. Persecution is going to increase, not decrease, as this leftist agenda that now is inevitable comes along. But that's exactly what the Bible said was going to happen. And so with each step along the way, with each of these things that occurs, just keep looking up. Just keep seeking after God. Keep praying after God. Keep confessing his name. Keep having trust and faith in him, and you'll have peace in him because he is an everlasting rock. Even as the world seems more and more insane, you can have genuine peace by knowing that the God of righteousness and holiness is in charge And that one day he is going to hold everybody accountable for all of the evil, the wickedness, and the bloodshed that they have done on this earth. We, through our striving, we, through the pain that we go through, we, through our struggles in our flesh, we can't accomplish anything. We can't redeem anything. We can't cause the earth to give birth. But it is going to happen. And it's going to happen according to God's plan, according to God's timing. Our job is to trust in him, pray to him, and keep proclaiming his name. And that, I think, is going to be why the Christian church in the coming years is going to be winnowed out. It's going to be weeded out. We're going to find out who the devoted ones are. But the church in the world is going to become all the more important. And you can see now why, before God pours out this trouble, this tribulation, this pain, he's going to take his bride home. And then he's going to unleash all of this tribulation on the planet. I'm not trying to be snarky, but it's a tough time to be post-millennial. I mean, it's a good time to say what the Bible says, which is, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. But it's going to get gloriously worse. It's going to get darker, but it's going to get gloriously dark. And then the Son of Man is going to come get his bride and appear in the heavens and then judge the nations with a rod of iron. And then the earth is going to be judged. And I don't really think I have anything more to say about it except that's what the Word of God says. And if you trust that, you can have peace in your mind and your heart even in these troubled days. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.